This is the place where the explicit language warning goes. But on this podcast, there is no explicit language. Think of it as like the page on a legal document that says, this page intentionally left blank. It's Tuesday, September 27th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The price tag for student debt relief is out, and it's $400 billion. Now, that seems like a lot of money, maybe, but that is only because of one thing. And the thing is that it is a lot of money. That's the thing. The CBO scored it, and while they use a 30-year time horizon, it is true that this amount of money, the most ever enacted by executive action will add to the deficit or, depending how you look at it, take away from other funding opportunities to a degree that will have a big impact. One argument for student debt relief uh, over the years or over the recent years when student debt has exploded is, you know, with interest rates so low, it's a great time to maybe add a little to the deficit. Now you don't hear that argument because it is simply not true. What you do hear are counter arguments about how high the price tag is. Counter arguments like this one from the big advocacy group, The Debt Collective, that was promoting the debt jubilee. They tweeted out this based on an article that the CBO scoring had it at $400 billion. They wrote, quote, Betsy DeVos hired private consultants who determined $400 billion of student debt would never be repaid anyway and would get written off in the end. The CBO score is just wrong. I don't know what Betsy DeVos and the implication that she had private eyes working for her has to do with anything, but you heard where they landed. Don't trust the CBO score. Well, maybe the CBO score is wrong. I mean, the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget says that the cost's actually $440 billion to maybe $600 billion, and that $600 billion figure is where the University of Pennsylvania's Penn Wharton School lands. The White House, by the way, is not rebutting the CBO's figure. The CBO also actually did take into account, as per the debt collective's complaint, that some percent of those with debt won't pay it off. Yeah, that actually did occur to think about that among our nation's top actuarial economists. They, they caught that one. They didn't let it slip through. There is a trend, and I do think it is a trend, of not treating policy choices as benefits versus costs. Activists so often portray the costs as absolute, crippling, or just non-existent. Program's going to pay for itself. They always pay for themselves. And the benefits become, depending on if you like the program or if you don't, total or, again, worse than non-existent, crippling once more. Opponents of the debt relief scheme engage in these same tactics, but there was a time, I think a time of greater gatekeeping, a time when the media had a greater professed desire to seek out empirical, discernible, non-postmodern truths, where a program like this would be evaluated under the question, does the benefit conferred justify the cost incurred? That does not seem to be the dominant question being asked. Maybe I'm inherently a technocrat. Maybe I pine for a time that wasn't as perfectly calibrated as I am portraying here. Maybe I just see the world as calculations and trade-offs. Progressives, like Bernie Sanders, don't seem to see the world this way. They talk about values, values like helping the poor. In this framing, it's not about the cost of a program. It's about the values that we show that we have by either acting or not acting. But aren't values constrained and defined by the value of the funding 
to address our concerns? No, the far left and the far right argue. The only people who insist we think about affording our agenda, those are our opponents, the bad people. We just wrote a $2 trillion check for that tax cut, the GOP tax cut, and nobody asked those folks how are they going to pay for it. Actually, everyone talked about the cost of war. And all fair, moderates, liberals, leftists pointed out that the Trump tax cuts wouldn't pay for themselves. And a great piece of evidence, how we knew that, is that we had and were able to rely on the scoring of the Congressional Budget Office, which they're not a bunch of oracles or seers, but they do generate a learned, good-faith effort to have accurate, useful data for a cost-benefit analysis. Unless you don't like the numbers, then they become just wrong. On the show today, death on a mountain. But first, America was once a country on the move, with the default assumption being you had to leave town to make it big. This is less true today in practice and also less of an ideal. Huge pockets of wealth in places that innovate, that's not necessarily good for those places or for the mid-sized cities that experience brain drain. Enter Steve Case. He's the man who started AOL and sold it to Time Warner over a decade ago. He now travels the country looking for local entrepreneurs. He has a bus. He has a book. The book's title is The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. Steve Case up next. Steve Case is the co-founder of AOL, made a pretty good deal out of that when it merged and was sold to Time Warner. These days, he has a bus. It's a bus that represents a dream. He goes throughout the country, calls up different mayors and say, hey, would you like entrepreneurship to be injected in your town or metropolis? He writes about this in The Rise of the Rest, how entrepreneurs in surprising places are building the new American dream. Steve Case, welcome to The Gist. Great to be with you. So you, or I assume it's not you, you have a member of your team, you call up the mayor of, I'm going to pick a town, Boise, Idaho. What's the pitch? What do you say? Well, it's not just the mayor. The mayor is important. We try to identify the cities around the country that are showing some signs of momentum around startups, around entrepreneurs uh, that we think can really uh, take off and accelerate their their growth. Uh, and then we spend months and months planning these 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 visits. We talk to the key people in, in the community, certainly the mayor, but also the university president, CEO, some of the big companies, uh, just try to get a mix of, of, of different perspectives. Uh, and then, you know, we show up and we really try to do what we can to better understand, you know, with boots on the ground, what's happening in that city, try to f figure out ways we can encourage more collaboration, more innovation. And we invest in some of the companies we, we meet there. And we've now done this in nearly 50 cities. Uh, we have also invested in a lot of cities that we haven't visited. Uh, we now have with our Rise the Rest uh, Fund, uh, 200 investments in 100, 100 cities. So we really are starting to see this innovation happening all across America. Most of the focus is on places like Silicon Valley. Most of the venture capital dollars go to a few states. 75% of the dollars go to just three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. But we think over the next decade, we'll see a leveling in the playing field, which I think will be good for these entrepreneurs, good for these cities, and frankly, also good for the country because it will we help, uh, help knit together a divided country uh, in part divided based on opportunity gaps. 
So I've not seen one, but I imagine, I can't help but imagine something like Shark Tank without all the drama and background music. But is that essentially what it's like they pitch to you? Yeah, we, we, uh, when we're coming to town, we basically invite entrepreneurs to, to submit their application pitch. Generally, for each city, we get about 100 applications. We pick the best eight or 10. So they then pitch to a, a group, including me, but also others, including some folks from the, the local community. And based on that, we decide uh, which company makes the most sense to uh, invest in. Uh, but as I said, we also have supplemented that. Now we've built a team of over a dozen people uh, that are focused on looking at different cities, evaluating different entrepreneurial opportunities, and then investing in those in those companies with the idea of generating you know, top tier returns as investors, but also we hope having a catalytic impact on these communities. Because the interesting thing to me, I had noticed a decade ago when I was asked by uh, President Obama to lead an effort called Startup America, but most new jobs come from new businesses. That small business in aggregate accounts for a lot of jobs. Big business, Fortune 500, accounts for a lot of jobs. But most of the job growth is 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 not small business or big business, but new business. So basically, companies under five years old, startups. And so that really led us down this path of trying to figure out ways to support more startups in more parts of the country, so it can have a positive impact on on those communities and, and over time also on the country. Is it a worry that the uh, you fund these businesses and you know that a way to get profitability is to have uh, costs, labor costs, be minimal, uh, as little as possible? You know, the very definition of productivity, the denominator there is how much money you're spending on labor costs. So is it a worry that the businesses you're funding, but just the way the economy is going, is away from intensive labor? So as you know, if you look at a, a huge company today like Apple and compare it to a huge company of yesteryear like GM, you have, you know, 10, 10 maybe orders of magnitude more employees at GM. How bad is that or worrying is that for the economy? Well, it is a concern. And, and the data over the last uh, you know, couple hundred years is pretty, uh, pretty sobering. But 200 years ago, over 90% of people worked on farms. Now it's about 2%. Uh, technology, basically better ways to grow food with, with you know, at lower cost uh, with, with fewer people has helped you know, feed the world, but also resulted in dramatic job loss from that sector, that agriculture sector. Thankfully, as a country, we kind of pivoted from that leading the way in the agricultural revolution to leading the way in the industrial revolution and retrain people to move from farms to, to factories. That was the case about 100 years ago. Yeah. More recently, as the digital revolution has taken off, we've done you know not as good a job, frankly, to your question of retraining people for the, the industries of, of the future. But as we've traveled around, we've actually seen some of the industries that are changing, that are getting you know, disrupted, uh, also creating new job opportunities in, in places that had been declining. We, our first visit of our first bus tour eight years ago was Detroit, which 100 years ago was sort of like the Silicon Valley of its time because the car was the hot technology of the day. And then over a half century, lost 60 percent of its population that went bankrupt the year before we arrived, it went bankrupt. Now it's growing again, in particular in the downtown Detroit area because of startups creating creating jobs there. And I also remember meeting an entrepreneur in eastern Kentucky in Appalachia, coal country, which people had given up on for decades, feeling like there's no opportunity there. This company called App Harvest has created 600 jobs there by building the largest in 
indoor greenhouse in the country uh, uses 90% less water. It's, it's, it's a within uh, 70% of the U.S. population is in 24-hour driving distance. There's a lot of reasons why it makes sense to have that company in, in eastern Kentucky. And that's an example of how startups are not just creating new companies, but also creating new hope and possibilities in some of these communities that have been struggling and left behind. So we're always going to see technology changing things. We're always going to see you know kind of new ideas changing things. We can't stop the pace of that progress. What we can do is when jobs are lost in, in different communities, offset them, at least in part, by backing new companies that can create new jobs that offset some of the inevitable job loss from some of these uh, industries that are being uh, being disrupted. Right. So it's great that an app company in Kentucky has a business where hundreds of people will be employed. But from agriculture to industry is one kind of jump. And there are some economists that say, in fact, it's the only provable jump that really lifts an entire society out of poverty and into and establishes a middle class. Uh, if in one sentence, it's essentially what China did and why China is the power it is now. From industry to the digital technology, there are Many, many benefits, but the need for just bodies to do these jobs is not one of the aspects of the digital economy. So do you favor, have you looked at things like um, minimal guaranteed income? What do you think of labor enforcing companies to you know, keep a certain job or a certain amount of pay? So my question is, do you think essentially innovation in the digital economy will take care of these problems? Or do we need some extra solutions in terms of uh, government intervention to make sure that the companies of the future will provide full employment and, you know, middle-class opportunities for most Americans? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. You're, I think you're always going to need a safety net, but I think focusing on trying to make sure that as many people as possible in many places as possible really do have good, high-paying jobs, I think it's got to be the focus. And again, as you travel around, it's not just the app startups. That's sort of the last 10 or 20 years has been about software and apps. The next 20 years, what I've called the internet third wave, is how the internet really starts starts integrating with some of the biggest industries in the world, things like, you know, like healthcare, food and agriculture, things like that, which create all kinds of new opportunities. And yes, there is some retraining required that one of the companies we backed in Baltimore, Maryland called Catalyte as a, as a terrific, uses AI to identify talent that people had that nobody told them about. So they've been one example as a truck driver, nobody told them about coding when he was growing up. It turned out he had a real aptitude for coding and, and basically got trained by Catalyte and got a job that was paying, I think it was three times more than he was making uh, you know, previously. So you know, my view is the role that we can play as, as, as sort of investors, as champions of entrepreneurs is trying to find these entrepreneurs all over the country. And the, the book talks about dozens of, of these entrepreneurs in dozens of cities that are really reimagining the future in a way that creates jobs in those communities. It's not just about maximizing the return on investment. It's also maximizing the impact we can have in those communities. And job creation is, is front and center. And that's why we're, we're focused on really accelerating our efforts. And that's why I decided to write the book, which I think it tells a reasonably optimistic story about the potential future of America. I understand some of the, the concerns you've raised. I, I share those concerns, but I think leaning into the future and trying to figure out not just how to innovate on the coast and create jobs and economic growth on the coast, how do we do that everywhere in the country? Uh, that's really been our focus for the last decade. We'll be the focus for the next decade. So I want to go back. I think I want to go back um, two steps and ask a couple basic questions. Maybe you as an investor, an entrepreneur, engage in this sometimes. Why? Why is it so important that 
every city is flourishes and that every city has entrepreneurial opportunities. The history of America is Cincinnati is a top 10 city in population for most of the 19th century. And then it isn't. And it's not a hollowed out husk. It's just less of an important city. And this story is told in many ways. Los Angeles goes from nowhere to the second largest city in the United States. So why is it important to preserve jobs in every city? Well, I think it's important to create opportunity in every city that right in the last half century, we've seen a brain drain where a lot of people have left where they grew up or left where they went to school because there wasn't a lot of things happening there, particularly if they wanted to be part of what you know, people refer to as sort of the innovation economy and that led them to go to the coast. In the last decade, California, one state has gotten 50 percent of venture capital. By comparison, states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Virginia, each get less than 1% of venture capital. So there are fewer new companies starting, fewer new companies scaling, fewer new comp- you know, jobs being created in these other states. So that's what we're trying to, to reverse. California can still continue to be strong. Silicon Valley continue to lead the pack. But how do we you know, create more places where these, these entrepreneurs can, can start and scale and really flourish and more of these communities can benefit from that. And I should also point out, it's not just the jobs the startups create. For every startup job, there's five other jobs in the community. I saw this when we were growing America Online, AOL in the Northern Virginia area. We went from dozens to hundreds of thousands of employees, but tens of thousands of jobs were created in the broader community. So it's important to have that these, these new companies creating the new jobs that then you know, create broader opportunity for everybody in the community. Yeah, I think I I agree with you, by the way. And yet, on the other hand, I know that the story of America is a story of dynamism, a story of growth and a story of population changes, the Great Migration North, the Sooners going out to settle the West, Los Angeles being, you know, if you have uh, aspirations or talent for acting, that's the magnet. And these magnet cities that pull people away from, you know, their farms or their small towns, that's not a bug. That is a feature of America. These days, you know, I'm sure you saw the study that just came out that said millennials rarely stray far from home. You know, a tiny fraction of them are living more than 100 miles away. Do you think that that's regrettable or uh, I'm going to predict you're going to say it's more of a symptom of exactly what you're trying to solve? I think it's terrific. I love I love giving people the opportunity to choose where they want to live as opposed to feel like they have to move someplace, maybe away from family, because that's the where the where the opportunity is for it obviously depends on what path they they choose. But for a lot of the tech jobs in the last couple of decades, the center of gravity has been uh, Silicon Valley. So that was the place to be. And if you choose to be there, fine, go for it. But if you want to continue to live and work in, 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 in a different part of the country, how do you have you know an interesting, compelling opportunity? And that's what we're trying to uh, to do with with uh, with Rise of Rest. I would point out that 50, 75 years ago, if you wanted to be in the entertainment business, you had to be in Hollywood but that's actually not the case anymore. And the reason I wrote the book is I really want to tell the stories of what we've seen firsthand over the last decade that I think will inspire people to to be more hopeful about the next decade. I think about my city, New York, which hasn't had a huge population change. And the characteristic of New York is that we're always able to absorb and willing to absorb people from all over the country and all over the world. And that's a great thing. It's a great thing that people want to move to New York. Um, But then again, I think about what you're saying, and I think it's totally accurate. And I think it gets down to why is a particular place so important to people? The one thing is if it's where your family lives, but also, you know, different places have unique characteristics that 
distinguish them from other places. Although I wonder if when it's different than it was even 50 years ago, I've had the experience of going through the main, especially when I was a reporter for NPR, I'd go to different towns. And if I didn't know where I was, I'd just go down the main drag and there'd be a Best Buy and there'd be maybe a Chipotle. And I couldn't even tell which city I was in. And I wonder if you've had that experience and if there's ever anything that you can do to not just allow people to live in the places they're from, but to keep those places distinct or make those places distinct. Well, what we found, having, having visited dozens of these cities on, on the bus, is a lot of these cities are distinct. And, and the question is how to build on what is distinctive. And you're right, you know, have fewer kind of big box chains and, and really more kind of local you know, businesses, new restaurants or beer pubs or bookstores or whatever they might be. So it goes back to this issue. If, you're, if your city is on the rise, you're seeing cities build on their distinctiveness. I remember when we were in Chattanooga, for example, one of the companies we, we backed was a company called Freightwaves that's kind of building a, a data platform, almost like a Bloomberg system for the trucking industry. Well, I didn't know it until we were there, but some of the biggest trucking companies in the country are based in Chattanooga. So if you're building a Bloomberg system for trucking, it's better to be in Chattanooga than to be in New York or, or, or San Francisco. We're seeing that all over the, the country. And that's really another reason why I decided to write the book. Yeah. You mentioned beer pubs. Beer pubs are actually really important. I read a book by uh, James Fallows and his wife, Deborah, and he would always go to the beer pub and they were a great symbol of and signal of how healthy and uh, Jim would go to the beer pub and his wife would go to the library. That was that was the right, story that was their across thing. America. No, no question. No, and they're both they're both obviously important kind of anchors of a of a community, particularly creating more of a vibrant kind of creative dynamic community. Yeah. So I think about what I know of your biography and you're from Hawaii, which is, uh, excuse the phrase, this isn't a real phrase, the most unique state in America. I know there's no such thing as most unique. And you mentioned Barack Obama, who was a couple years younger than you in school. A couple right? years younger. Yeah, we're in the same high school in Honolulu, <laughs> but I was a senior when he was a freshman. So I don't, I don't remember being in classes with him. I did remember playing basketball <laughs> with him a couple of times. But, uh, Punahou, is that the, is that the high school? school yeah. Yeah. So, and a distinctive high school, a distinctive place. And so I wonder if maybe this gave you more of an appreciation or just you were more in tuned to the uniqueness of places than some of your fellow entrepreneurs or, you know, uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, I think there's some of that. Growing up in Hawaii, you felt a little left out. Even when I was a kid, the, we'd get the TV shows a week late because they would set, send them on a like a ship. So you'd watch, you know, watch that <laughs> sitcom or whatever it is a week later. <laughs> which which is a little weird uh and then i grew you know i went to you know uh, moved to the mainland for college and then was in massachusetts then li you know lived and worked in ohio and then in kansas and then started and, and scaled uh aol in in northern virginia uh and so i saw some of these places that weren't particularly vibrant startup hubs. it was hard to get aol started in in northern virginia because there really wasn't a startup ecosystem there wasn't you know venture capital it was hard to be taken seriously as a as a new company and so the first decade was, was a struggle i think having lived in Live through that, whether it be growing up in Hawaii or living in different parts of the country, or or starting and scaling uh, AOL here in the in the in the in the Northern Virginia area. I think that did give me an appreciation of of some of the challenges entrepreneurs in places outside of Silicon Valley have. And then coupling that with the work we started doing a decade ago and the visits we started making, and you know now that, that we've literally visited dozens and dozens of, of, of cities and invested in over 100, 100 different uh, you know, cities, it's remarkable what's happening. Uh, and we're just trying to champion these these entrepreneurs that are not just building companies, but in many ways, rebuilding, renewing their communities. 
Okay, so I was just reading some of your investments, your companies. They include Zipcar, Brainscope, Add This, Sparefoot, Order Up. What I notice, I I I never knew who to talk to about this before I got you on the line. Every business these days is two words mashed together. There are no (laughs) spaces between any of the words. I guess that's because of URLs, but can you do something about that? Can you make that a condition of funding that you have to separate the words and have a nice space? Well, I'm not sure that would be our principal you know, no, criteria like in determining which companies to, to back. But you're right. Companies are trying to figure out ways to get noticed. Or, you know, how do you how do you figure out what some way to you know, you know get it win the battle for attention? And, and the name that people pick for companies is, is part of that. Even in our own experience, we initially started what but now people think of AL initially started as quantum computer services and mm. got renamed America Online Incorporated. Then actually our customers, our members, uh, renamed it AOL. They thought America Online was a mouthful, and a lot of companies do end up with a with a relatively short, you know, kind of brand that that uh, tries to you know, encapsulate what they do, but it's getting increasingly difficult. Or a misspelling. Apparently, that drives business. If you misspell it slightly with two e's, where an i and an e should go, or instead of a y, that's a huge trend too. Sometimes I sometimes I think about all the companies that have been established for so long and have made millions to billions of dollars that could never exist if those were their names. Like, what is it, Fifth Third Bank? Yeah, it was, you, it was. I actually that, grew, I was in Cincinnati working at Procter Gamble a while. And they were they were based in Cincinnati, and, and the bank was on the corner of Fifth and Third. So that made perfect sense for a while. But when they started expanding, it made a little less sense. Made a little less sense, except uh, here it is. So what's that say about a brand? A brand is as good as the business itself, probably. Exactly. The name of the book is The Rise of the Rest, How Entrepreneurs in Surprising Places Are Building the New American Dream. Steve Case is not just writing the book. He's helping these entrepreneurs to live that dream. Steve, thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. American ski mountaineer Hillary Nelson is missing and presumed dead in Nepal. I'm the one doing the presuming based on the following passage in the New York Times. Ms. Nelson, 49, appeared to fall into a 2,000-foot crevasse. Whether Ms. Nelson, an athlete and mother of two based near Telluride, Colorado, survived the fall was unknown. Maybe I'm being too certain in my presumption people have survived falls of 2,000 feet. Perhaps the information is incomplete. Perhaps her fall was somehow truncated. This is, no matter what happens, of course a tragedy. But it's not the kind of tragedy that you often hear about with words like senseless, pointless, or unforeseen attached. I wasn't terribly familiar with ski mountaineering, sometimes called ski touring, which has recently been rebranded as the much more kick-ass schemo. Basically involves climbing up a mountain, then skiing down it. As exemplified by Ms. Nelson's fate and just simple contemplation of what's involved, it is very dangerous. A month ago, ski mountaineering champion Adele Milos died at the age of 26 while climbing in the Mont Blanc range in the French Alps. The Swiss Alpine Club recorded 27 fatal ski touring incidents and 10 fatal free ride incidents. Free rides when you climb the mountain, then ski down a non-prescribed trail. 
That was in the country of Switzerland just in 2019, those 37 total fatalities, 2019 the last year for which we have good figures. Most of the deaths involved in schemo come from avalanches. In fact, an avalanche on the very same mountain that Nelson was on hit a separate expedition of climbers, killing one, injuring 14, and four were helicoptered out. Schemo is really dangerous. A recent study of the dangers of ski sports in general found that alpine skiing, you know, downhill, snowboarding, cross country, and sledging, sledding, this was a British study, were relatively safe. The authors did go out of their way to cite ski touring as dangerous. 4.4 deaths per 1 million exposure days. It's a high mortality risk. If you look at the Wikipedia entry for people who have skied down peaks of 8,000 meters or higher, there are 14 such peaks in the world, you find, even from the get-go, entries like this. The honor of being first to ski from the top of an 8,000-meter peak depends on the standard applied. Yves Moran of France skied off the top of Annapurna in 1979, and over the course of the expedition, skied all segments of the descent. However, he died while descending from the summit. Wikipedia has a page chronicling all men and women who have skied down a mountain of 8,000 meters. Most of them don't have bios recorded. 23 do. Of those 23, eight died on the mountain. That is more than a third of the best ski tourers in the world. And this would all be fine or okay or acceptable or in the category of individual risk, except for there are a few developments to consider. Schemo is poised to become much bigger because for the first time, the International Olympic Committee has added ski mountaineering as a new sport in the 2026 Winter Olympics in Milan Cortina. It will be compelling television, specifically for the danger. Here is how the ISMF, the Sports International Federation, promotes itself in a video. The visuals are stunning mountain views obtained by drones. The score is bracing. The narration is laden with tension. But why rely on me to generate the synonyms? Mother Nature's deceptive beauty. Luring. Daunting. Perilous. Indeed it is, as the history of fatalities of top participants attest to. The ISMF leans in further to the danger. It's routine to go face to face with the extreme. Super athletes living on a place called The Edge. That place is, by definition, unstable. And that all draws competitors, participants, eyeballs, and now Olympic approval. I've interviewed many extreme athletes in my life. They live for these activities until they don't. You can't mandate safety. You can't tell a certain kind of personality, one who's tasted that adrenaline, to live without it. But the consequences are real, not just for the participants, but for the families they leave behind. I remember interviewing a woman whose partner, a competitive climber, died on the mountain. It was all, this is who he was. He couldn't live any other way. He died doing what he loved. Okay, but he died in an extremely dangerous activity that I think we a bit carelessly label a sport, and he 
they left a trail of anguish in his wake, as is always the case, which again is up to the individual, but let's realize that we are now using the marketing muscle of the most moneyed international sporting organization in the world to glamorize and glorify this activity. I just think of a couple of different sporting comparisons. Before the 2010 Olympics, a Georgia luge athlete died during a training run. The track was meant to accommodate speeds of 85 miles per hour, but the sledders were achieving 95. Of course, the IOC and the Olympic Committee echoed the claims of, oh, just an unforeseeable accident. But they did add padding. They did add to the wall height. They did lower the men's starting position to that of the women's to reduce speed. The sporting world, to the extent it cared about a loser from Georgia, was correct in its assessment that what was going on was that they were chasing ever more perilous conditions and thereby risking the life of an athlete. But compare that to Schemo. The IOC has selected it specifically for the perilous conditions. It's hard to square the thinking. You know, on the one hand, we have to do everything we can to keep our venues safe. On the other hand, we will seek out a sport where the very point of even thinking about it as a venue is that it defies safety. I also think of the NFL and head trauma. There is so much warranted criticism about how the league slow-walked legitimate findings and denied actual realities that indicated the sport was unsafe. But now, most of the participants, certainly the uh, adult professionals, know what they're getting into. And the stain, however, around this issue hasn't really lifted. There's still a conception among many that the NFL is kind of backwards, inherently unsafe, an endeavor that should be shunned. Now, Schemo is more niche. I bet many of those castigating football have never heard of Schemo. But among those who have, there isn't the same sort of dismissiveness of ski mountaineering participants as rubes or suckers or people who take risks they don't understand. The corporate sponsors of Schemo are sophisticated and high-end. Nelson was sponsored by North Face, and she was named one of National Geographic's Adventurers of the Year. The gear to climb up and then ski down a mountain is really expensive. The participants are usually pretty well off to begin with. As I've said many times of this tragedy, the choices made are up to the individual. My concern is one of risk acceptance and approval societally. I think our calibrations might be a bit off. I also think our desire for more extreme recreation, like the battle cries of its participants, knows no limit. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the just assistant producer and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, And thanks for listening.